Hello, and welcome to Heroes in Our Midst. Today's podcast is brought to you by Elite Sports Injury with five locations in Winnipeg. They are here to help when you need physiotherapy or massage therapy. Your body's worth it. Make the time for yourself. Hi, I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop. And honestly, putting these podcasts together feels like time for myself. Time to learn, time to be surrounded by excellence, time to get to know the humans behind incredible performances. Speaking of incredible, our guest today was literally the best in the world at what she does. She's a curler, and her name is Jill Officer. Yep, the Jill Officer. She's a six-time Scotty's Tournament of Hearts champion, a two-time world champion, and, of course, an Olympic champion. And those are just the times that she won. She was in countless event playoffs, winning medals of all kinds. And now I get to share her story with you. So after years as the outstanding second on Jennifer Jones's team, Jill has retired from competitive curling. But there was a time she even had to balance being a mom, working as an RBC Olympian, and being a professional athlete. That's a lot. And as a result, she has a lot to share. So I asked her to take us back to Once Upon a Time. Well, like many people who curl, uh, it was a family thing. My grandparents played in leagues uh, at a club in Winnipeg. My mom was um, a junior court, like a coordinator of a junior league. uh, And she also played two or three times a week. My brother and sister played in the junior league. So I was always around the curling club. I was also always around the hockey rank because my dad was a competitive hockey coach and my brother played. Uh, I always just say I had a little more natural ability for curling. So I, I had been on the ice a a fair amount, I guess. I I don't really remember, but I I remember when I was 10, my uh, mom ended up putting me on a team because uh, there was a player that uh, somebody had broken their leg and wasn't going to be able to curl for the remainder of the season. And at the time, my mom actually thought that I was too young (laughs) to start and, or to be on a team and play every week. And a friend of hers actually said, Oh no, she's totally ready. You should put her in. So I started when I was 10. Uh, I'm going to date myself by saying I started with a corn broom (laughs) for people who know curling. Um, Yeah. So, so then, you know, a couple of years later, my mom put a little team of my friends together and we'd go in little bonce beals and stuff like that. And it was so fun. And uh, so, yeah, I just kind of went from there. And then when I was 16, somebody by the name of Jennifer Jones asked me to curl with her. Wow. So that started really, I mean, I know, I know you've been with her for so many, so many years. How did you make that connection? Like what was your common, were you just at the same curling club or, or how did that come to be? We were playing in, in bond spiels, uh, against each other and like zone playdowns and stuff. And I was skipping a team, which is really weird to say, cause I've never skipped since then, <laughs> but uh, I was skipping a team and playing in the playdowns, trying to get to provincials, never got to provincials. Um, but one day she pulled me aside at, uh, what used to be the Highlander curling club in Winnipeg. It no longer has uh, curling as part of that facility, but, she pulled me aside and asked if I'd be interested in playing. And she had already played at the Canadian juniors at that time. So I was actually a little starstruck at the time that Jennifer Jones was asking me if I would be interested in playing with her. So, you know, I went home and talked to my parents about it, you know, obviously because, you know, they would need to let me use the car a little more often and things like that. <laughs> so 
yeah, kind of got on board with that. And that very first year we curled together, we lost the provincial junior final my first time in provincials. So it was like the whole thing was a whole new experience for me. And then the next year we won the provincials, but uh, lost out in tiebreakers at nationals. And then the next year we won provincials and the nationals. So it was just like, we went up really quickly and yeah, we had a really good junior career too. So what do you think it was like Jennifer Jones is looking at this whole curling club full of curlers and she zeroed in on you and said, Hey, you want to curl with me? Obviously there was something about you that caught her eye. What do you think it was? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know. And maybe (laughs) I should ask her that question. Or if you have her on the podcast, you should ask her that question, but I don't know. Like I'm guessing maybe like just, I had some natural ability, like I said, right? Like I had a nice delivery, like, you know, the, how you throw the curling stone. I had a, a good delivery and I don't, so I'm not totally sure what she saw, but I think, you know, in the end I, I was committed. I was hardworking. I put a lot of effort into it. Um, I think I was a good teammate. So, I mean, whether she saw that at the time, I don't know, but uh, I think I evolved into some of those things if I wasn't at the time. And were you a second right away? I did play second right away. Yes, I did play second right away. So I, yeah, I played second in juniors and then Jennifer and I, when we, in our first few years in women's, we played with uh, a couple of other women that had been curling for a long, like a long time. They were a little bit older than us, but Jen played third and I played lead and that was for four years. Yeah. And then I went off to school and blah, blah, blah. But it it was, so we eventually reverted back to skip and second and uh, Mm -hmm. that seemed to be the best combo. (laughs) That's cool. What makes, what makes someone a good second in curling? I've often wondered that because I mean, each position as you watch it and the more you watch the more you understand, wow, there's really a lot of consistently different shots that you had to make versus, you know, the lead or, or the skip or the third and that kind of thing. Uh, what, what do you think was it that set you in that position and said, this is where you belong? Well, I think what set me in that position initially was that I always had a, an ability to throw lots of weight. So I had power out of the hack that I could throw, like I could throw hit weight really comfortably. So I think that's what sort of put me in that position initially. Um, I've been around curling a long time. And so the game and some of the rules have changed and evolved. So when I first started curling, uh, there was no what's called three rock rule or four rock rule or or what we have now, which is the five rock rule. But uh, there was no rule like that. So the second was always hit, 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 hit. Like more often than not, it was just hit, 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 hit. And then when, when, even when three rock came in, even four rock, it was, it was still a lot of hitting for the second. So peeling of guards and things like that. And then when it evolved to the five rock rule, that's when it really sort of changed the, uh, the position of second in that the first five rocks of an end, uh, you couldn't remove rocks that were in front of the rings. So the house being the rings in front, any rock that was in front of the rings of the opposition, you couldn't take it out in the first five rocks. So it actually forced uh, a lot of times for the, the first rock that the second would throw, it actually forced them to play more precise draws or tap backs or stuff. Now, 
the strategy that we always had was very aggressive. So I was playing some of those anyways. Uh, so I, over, over the years, I had to really learn how to play that softer game and, and learn how to draw and just like draw, put rocks in the house kind of thing. And so I really had to work on that aspect of my game, my game. But initially it was because I was really good at hitting that put me in that, in that position. Yeah. I think that's what I remember about watching you for a lot of times. She's like, oh my word, she can throw it so hard. Is that like one of your favorite things? That's got to be fun to be able to just wing it down there, but also be so accurate. Yes. Yeah. I think I, I think that's what I loved about it was being able to throw that power. And, and not only that, but as time went on to be able to throw that power accurately and get really good results you know like if you ever made a double or you made a double peel or made something a little tougher you know that's when it was like oh yeah this is awesome right <laughs> <laughs> exactly i think i think lots of us when we would watch and even some of the announcers you know they're like oh she never misses oh here we okay it's a peel for jill and then we're going to move on to the next stones and and i mean I, i'm guessing you 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 every time you get in the hack you know was there a time do you remember a time in your career where where you kind of knew you weren't going to miss if you had to peel a guard or that you had to make a hit or is every time you go back there, is there a, something you have to do mentally to get yourself like confident enough to make the shot? Right. Well, there's certainly like keywords for me that always worked in that sort of pre-shot routine, especially on, on throwing those up weights because you're coming so fast out of the hack. You don't have a lot of time to adjust. Whereas if you're, if you're sliding slower for a draw, you have a little bit more wiggle room, not a lot, but you have a little more wiggle room. So it was really important to just like make sure you were sliding on the line so that you didn't have have to worry about making too many adjustments as you were sliding out. But I think later in my career was when I really like really felt like the last two quadrennials or so that I played, I think I really felt I might not have always made the shot, but I didn't flat like like a flash and curling meaning. I didn't like miss the whole rock or miss right. the whole thing. Right. So I think I got like so much more accurate at making those, those shots that I, I just became more and more confident. And I do remember in the Olympic trials final that we played in Winnipeg at the arena, which I remember you sung, Oh Canada, after we won. I know. So <laughs> awesome. Oh my gosh. I remember that clearly. But that game was like the game of my life. I, I played super well, but I, it was also just peel after peel after peel because we had sort of had control of the game. And so I was just peeling and peeling and peeling, but I, it just felt so easy for me to do that day. <laughs> Yeah, it was that day. That was certainly you and your team's day. It was so amazing. Well, we're going to get there in, in your story. I, I do want to go back. So you and Jennifer Jones were playing junior curling together. Okay. And, um, and your teammates, I mean, they, did they come and go? Did you guys, were you the ones that lasted the sort of the longest together as far as your career went? Well, yes, I guess so. Yes. So in juniors, we, we played with um, Trisha Baldwin and Dana Malinchuk and we won, like we played four years together in juniors. Um, I don't remember where Trish and Dana went afterward or what their plan was. Uh, but Jennifer and I then went on to play with Karen Fallis and Patty Burtnick. And that's where Jen played third. I played lead. Karen skipped. Patty played second. Uh, we played together, I think for four years, had some success, played on the world curling tour, 
Uh, I was trying to sort out what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I was at that age where I, you know, I tried university at the time. I didn't really like it. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I was just, you know, living the life, working part-time, currently on the tour. And then I finally decided that, okay, maybe I need to go to school. So I applied for creative communications at Red River. And so when I got in, I decided I needed to focus on that and take a break from school. So Jen and I played together for eight years at that time. And then I went off to school for a period of time and her and I ended up reuniting in the 2003-2004 uh, season. Okay. Now I often think like curling is those teams are small. It's four or five of you, right? You know, when you play a sport like basketball or volleyball or hockey, or, you know, there's a coach who's making those decisions and the players on the team, you don't even have much influence on it. Really. Those are your teammates. It's like you all play together and you can love each other hard. And suddenly one of them is let go. Suddenly one of them isn't good enough anymore. Someone gets cut, but it's never sort of the teammates decision. Now in curling, that seems different. And how hard is is that and and when you start thinking oh we got to make some changes here or something like that like i would love for you to just speak about that dynamic in the sport of curling that's a challenge yeah you know we we are in a, in a unique situation where we're not a large enough team that we have 15 or 20 or 25 athletes involved right mm -hmm. um so it is a very tight-knit group it's almost more i see it almost more at like to some degree can be similar to an individual sport in some ways yeah. um in terms of like the, yes the management and everything of it totally up to the athletes we choose who we're curling with we choose how to put the team together and obviously we get funding through own the podium and national team programs and we bring sponsorship in but it's all managed by the team now i some people may disagree with me on this i like it like that i think that i would rather and this is going back, I mean, we cut players, we let players go, and it was never, ever, ever easy. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I also don't know that I would want a manager dictating so much of that and various other things about my curling team because of the small size of it and the importance of the dynamic amongst those four or five players. Mm -hmm. So some people may disagree with me and they would maybe rather be able to you know give or have that burden taken off of them but i kind of like being able to have the control of that team so we are definitely unique in in that way i sometimes say that we were stuck a little bit between amateur and professional but um i don't know I, I like i would like us to go professional to some degree but i also would like the athletes to still have control of their teams but I know some people disagree with me on that. So yeah, there's pros and cons, I guess, to any situation. But I thought I think about it, and in the past, and teams I've been on, and girls that have been cut, where some of us are going, "What in the world? We need her." Yeah, for sure, there is definitely pros and cons. Yeah, yeah. but I liked being able to have control of who I played with. <laughs> well, there you go, and you were willing to take that responsibility if you were part of the decision, right? And right. So here you are, you and Jennifer got back together. Yeah. And, um, and so where are we at now in your in your story and in your journey? Well, I went to college and I studied communications, I majored in journalism. And from my schooling, I got a full time job at, a, at the TV station in Brandon, Manitoba, which no longer exists. <laughs> um, but I worked there for a few years as an anchor and reporter. And then I got a job as communications manager for the city of Brandon. And 
within that time that I was on contract at the city of Brandon, we won our first Scotty's Turn of Hearts. So I was living in Brandon when I got back together with Jen in the 2003-2004 season. We curled with um, Karen Fallis, Karen and Lynn Fallis for one year. And then I don't even remember exactly how it came together. Uh, I don't know if Kathy Goche phoned Jen. I can't remember, but it ended up Jen and Kathy Goche and myself and Kathy Overton Clapham and the four of us played together in the 04-05 season. And we won provincials and won the Scotties that year. So we we won the Scotties while I was still living in Brandon, working in Brandon. And so after we won that Scotties, I realized that all of a sudden we had all these resources coming to us and all these expectations. And I realized that I probably couldn't work full time mm-hmm. and be able to manage curling and all the things that come with it, like training and physio appointments and practice and all that kind of stuff. So I started doing some part-time work for the city and then ended up sort of phasing myself out because I, it was really tough to balance. And then I'm driving back and forth from Winnipeg to Brandon once or twice a week because there was no air service in Brandon when I lived there. So I had to come in just to fly or I had to come into practice or whatever. So I don't even, I did that for four winters, four years, wow. I think. Yeah. And then our teams kind of started to evolve from there, but I, I ended up like in terms of work, I ended up in 2008 ish, I ended up on the RBC Olympians program. And I was on that for a very long time and was so grateful to have that as a job. I mean, the RBC Olympians program is hiring elite athletes to be community ambassadors, and we get paid to do that work and that job. So it couldn't have worked out better for me at that time. So when you get to the level of winning a Scotties and, and, you know, heading to world championships, what does a curling practice look like? What does a, a week in the life of Jill Officer at that time look like? Testing my memory, Michelle. I don't remember at that time as much. Like I'm, I'm thinking that I practiced a lot. Yeah. Cause I practiced a lot. I would go like on my lunch hour or whatever. I was still living in Brandon when we won our first Scotties, but I mean, for the most part, over our evolution of a team and and the success like we prat like we were on the ice every every day we we'd maybe take a day or two off uh sometimes the girls would take more time off than I would but if for me it was just um, uh, about staying loose because my body would tighten up if I didn't go for a few days or whatever depended on when we were playing and competing and stuff and you know we would do lots of team practices years ago and that evolved as well that you know we we had a little bit less team practice a little more individual practice is what we preferred it was just kind of finding the balance every every year every quadrennial and you know if we're by yourself you probably practice 45 minutes to an hour if you're with your team you know you're probably at least a couple of hours um I don't but like I said I don't remember what the practice was like like back around that first time that we won the yeah. spot necessarily so yeah it's interesting right you just remember getting in there as much as you could and making sure you got on the ice yeah exactly that you had practice time that you were feeling good about how you were throwing that you were working on things that you were you know you're going into a practice you're either focusing on you know how you're throwing or you're focusing on your draw weight or you're focusing on your sweeping or you're focusing on you know throwing peels all the time or you know whatever it was like there was always sort of something to to work on 
For sure. I think there was a time, no, I know there was a time in curling where, you know, you'd watch curlers and you go, yeah, I could do that. I don't know. They don't look super fit. I bet you I could go back, throw a few rocks and get to the Olympics. It doesn't look like that now. Like, man, it's changed. When was the greatest time that you noticed this sport is changing? Because you were playing for a long time while it was revolving. Yeah, I went through a lot of the evolution of curling, like with the with the the changes in the in the rules and stuff to and and the, those like the three rock rule, four rock rule, five rock rule that the purpose of those changes was to have more offensive play, make it more interesting. Yeah. Uh, curlers were getting so good that it was like we needed to make it more challenging. Right. So I really think looking back that I think things really started to I'm I'm kind of thinking it was like going into the Vancouver games because there was just so much emphasis on the Canadian athletes for the Vancouver games right I mean that's where own the podium the funding program like where that's where it it came from like own the podium came from prior to the Olympic or prior to the Vancouver games and then they just kept it in place because it was so successful so um, I really sort of saw it really ramp up around then and that and so probably in the last 10 years it's just really elevated uh I think it becoming an official Olympic sport in 98 made a big difference as well but then in Canada going into Vancouver and then you know just yeah the last 10 years it's just the level of play has just really gone up. And, and even what you must do off ice training, did, they, did you feel the expectations? And as you're getting older, did you feel the expectation getting higher and higher on you? Yeah, I guess in some way, I definitely felt like when we won our first Scotties, that's when I felt like the expectations were, were coming in where it was like, okay, we have funding and resources for you, but here's what we we need you to start act like, like really focusing on working out and, and doing train off, off or dryland training and like, et cetera, et cetera, which was fine. I, it was great that I did that. I got hooked up with a great trainer in Brandon. Um, and so that, that was great for me to do. And, I, you know, going into that, we were in the, we were one of the favorites to go to Vancouver you know, we were two-time defending national champions at the time. And anyway, we didn't do very well in those Olympic trials. But yeah, like the expectation like really started to to grow. I think as soon as we won that first Scotties and we started doing more of the, the training and all of that stuff. And then, yeah, obviously that just continued on and, and everybody started putting a lot more emphasis and work into that aspect of the game because... I think everyone noticed the benefits, especially with power out of the hack, stability out of the hack, like with, with sliding um, and doing those things repeatedly. And also with the uh, sweeping and being able to sweep, you know, that many rocks over a period of time. And like, it was just, it was really important to do that. And so everyone started taking that a lot more seriously, especially watching, you know, Kevin Martin's team or, or even Cheryl Bernard's team at the Vancouver games, those two teams were in really great shape. Yeah. And they worked out all the time. And that like for Kevin Martin's team, that was the expectation was that they did that, you know? And so it was just all these examples of these people coming through that were successful and that that was part of their plan. Absolutely. Let's talk about being successful. I think 2008, was that your first gold medal at a world's? Yes, 
Yes, it was. It was our first medal at a Worlds. <laughs> yeah, that was only our second Worlds. And the first one, we had lost the bronze medal game. So, Okay, so in 2008, who was on your team at that time? And tell me about sort of that tournament and it uh, when that put you on the, on the top of the world stage. Right. So that tournament was in Vernon, BC. Uh, and it was Jennifer and myself at skip and second. <laughs> and <laughs> Kathy Overton Clapham was third. And Dawn Askin, now McEwen. Uh, she was, uh, Dawn was the lead. That was the first year that Dawn was on our team. And yeah, we played in Vernon, BC. A lot of people are, you know, would, would say, oh, don't, wouldn't you prefer to go over to Europe to curl in a world championship? But in curling, that's not the case at all. This is where you want to be anywhere <laughs> in Canada is where you want to play to be, to play in a world championship. And, you know, when you're team Canada in Canada, it's awesome. So we had such an amazing experience and I mean, we played well, but it just also kind of worked out for us. Like I think back to a couple of shots and games and I'm like, wow, like it just, you know, there's that small part of you that just thinks that it was meant to be at that time. Right. So yeah. it was really exciting to, to win that. And that was the first time that China really came onto the world stage and like was a force to be reckoned with. And they actually beat us in the first game that week and they were so thrilled to beat Canada. Uh, we ended up playing them in the gold medal game and yeah, it was it was a battle, but uh, it was so exciting to win. Do you find, Jill, I, I find, you know, there are times where you win the world championship and then there's times where, man, like just to get out of that whole, that whole first big slog of playing everybody, you guys play so many games. Being on your game and being off your game at a championship that has so much pressure, it seems to me it could be just minuscule. Like you're just not quite making, curling is that kind of a game, you know, and maybe speak to that in, in times where obviously when you've won it all, you've been on, you've been on in every way, uh, even if it's a matter of millimeters, you know, and then just being off. Like what's the difference, do you think? I, I will say that we've won the Scottish Tournament of Hearts in every way imaginable. <laughs> So, I mean, we've, we've won it where we've just dominated the whole week and we've won it where we've literally ground our way there and gone through tiebreakers and like every played every game possible uh, to win it, you know, so so we've kind of done it both both ways. Um, and I think over time, we just learned how to manage the week. Right. It was a long week. We learned that we would typically have a bit of a, a downswing around Monday or Tuesday, midweek. We'd lose a game to somebody we shouldn't lose to. And I think we just started learning that we had to put a little extra focus on at that point of the week, okay. because that was where everybody kind of like started having a bit of a dip. You've been curling for two or three days um, and, it, and you're just like, you haven't kind of found the groove yet. So we, we found ways to keep that going right from the start. So a lot of it was experience, but it's certainly, I can think back to different Scotty Turner of hearts or world championships where it literally like one shot that was, or wasn't made by either us or even another team. And we wouldn't have won. So for example, the 2008 Scotties, we, I can't remember what our record was, but we needed Ontario to beat Newfoundland, I think it was. And so we had no control now on this. We had to sit back and wait to see. And that was only going to get us into a tiebreaker. Oh. We sat at the hotel, watched the game, and all Newfoundland had to do was throw a guard. Like, pretty simple, like, just throw it up front, like, in front of the rings. 
and they probably like they win the game and we're out she throws her guard at the back of the rings like super heavy not leaves a shot for ontario ontario wins we get into tiebreakers we win two tiebreakers, uh, three, four game semifinal and the final to win the Scotties that year. If Newfoundland makes the guard, we're not even likely in the tiebreakers. So that's just an example of like one shot making the difference, not only for the team that's on the ice sometimes, you yeah. know, you know, there was another time we were playing in the semifinal of the Scotties. I think it was in, I don't know, maybe 2012 playing in the semifinal extra end against Alberta. And they have a draw to the forefoot for the win. And it's sliding heavy. And Caitlin, our third at the time, starts to sweep it behind the T-line, comes down to a measurement. And we end up losing the game. But we found out that the measurement was only lost by the thickness of a dime. So, like, we literally lost, like, the game to go to the final yeah, on, on the thickness of a dime, like they had to measure it and everything. And so, yeah, so those are examples for you on how, you know, they, they say, oh, it's a game. What do they call football? It's a game of inches or whatever. We, and we used to say, we wish we had inches. We have millimeters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but you watch that when those rocks go past those guards and you go, no, no, it's not going to go. And if it does, it's perfection. Yeah, that's yeah. so much. That's so much fun to watch. So I'd love to, uh, for you to take us on the journey from 2008 to that gold medal in 2014, the disappointment of 2010, you touched on it already. Um, there were expectations on you guys like crazy. And, and there was four years, six years, whatever, the eight years there where you wanted to go in 2010, how great that would have been. 2014, you still got to qualify at home in Winnipeg and all of that. So what a roller coaster that time was. And maybe take us through that time. Who was with you? How did that go? What were some of the highlights and some of the challenges in that time? Yeah, that's a big section. <laughs> yeah, we won we won the Scotties in 08 and then won the Worlds that year. So in, in curling, when you win the Scotties, which is the nationals you go back as team Canada the next year so we went back in 09 as team Canada we won again we went to the uh the worlds in Korea where we lost the bronze medal game and then um we went yeah to the Olympic trials we were a favorite to win to go to Vancouver and we finished I think tied for last so it was really really disappointing I, I remember I remember that, that trials and how disappointed I was with that, but we went on that year to win the Scotties again as team Canada. Uh, and we went to the worlds in swift current that year. And we finally won the bronze medal game. Cause that's a really hard game to play in. And so we finally, we won the bronze medal game, but we started discussing the team and the future of the team. And, and when I say we, it was three of us that started discussing the future of the team and, and started questioning the fit, um, you know, of, of the four of us with, or all four of us with the player. And so that was when, and I, I mean, I can say it because it was so public, but that's yeah. when we decided to let Kathy Overton Clapham go from our team. It was so, it was a really difficult decision. We talked circles around it. We tried to find ways not to do it because we knew like how difficult it would be, but we just felt like that's what we needed to do if we were going to continue on as a group and that we were like, or that the rest of us were going to continue on that we needed that change in order to sort of have the motivation to continue to go on. It was excruciating. And I know it was really hard for her too. And, and it's one of those things where it's like, 
and I, I don't know if this, this is how I see it. It's like, we, I, we knew it would hurt her, obviously. Like, you know, and that's why I say we tried so many different ways to, to find, to work around it. And it just, we knew it would hurt her, but we felt like we were hurting ourselves more, be disrespecting ourselves more if we, if we didn't make the tough decision. So we took a lot of heat for it and for a really long time. And it was really, really difficult uh, for a really long time to manage all of that because Kathy was a popular player and, and a popular mm -hmm. curler and she still is. And so we dealt with it. We mm -hmm. had to face the facts and face the, the media and whatever. And we did and took the high road for a really long time. And anyway, that's when we brought Caitlin Laws onto our team and she was just a young, you know, had been out of juniors for a few years. Yeah. Uh, she had actually moved to Alberta to curl and we brought her back. Uh, so she came back home originally from Winnipeg and we brought her on board and just obviously into an established, well-established team, but she just fit in really well and she improved really quickly, you know, because it's a big jump from juniors to women. So she improved really quickly. And yeah, we went into the Olympic trials in 2013 in Winnipeg at the arena. And we just were so ready. Like our plan was good. We were so excited. We were so ready to go into that. And it just like that whole week, it just felt so good. And we were, you know, so ready to play in that final game, like ha had to wait all day to play in that game. And uh, it was so exciting to win at home, finally be on the podium to go to the Olympics, like to become Olympians that that was never going to be taken away from us. It was just so thrilling to have that opportunity. And then, of course, we went on to uh, Sochi in 2014. And again, just had like, we just really went into the Olympics because I mean, you've been to the Olympics, Michelle. So you understand, like, sometimes you just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what everything is going to be like. You don't know what your accommodations are going to be like. You don't know what the food is going to be like. You don't know all of this stuff. But I think we just, we made the best plan that we could. And we went in embracing whatever it was going to be. And we were just so excited to finally be at the Olympics that we were, we just were so excited to get on the ice, to slide over the Olympic rings, all that like super cool stuff, right? I just remember, and we went undefeated in the Olympics and there, there was really only two times that I felt concerned that we were in trouble on the ice. <laughs> right. And both of those came in the gold medal game, actually. So it was just like, it, it, I don't know, it just, everything just went so good in that few months, you know, and, yeah. and it, it just paid, everything just paid off. Everything sort of came together for you guys. I want to take one moment, though, because when you talked about sort of that stretch of time, some of the tough decisions you had to make and even the decision to bring Caitlin Laws, there are times in our lives where we have to make decisions that are hard. Yes. And right. was, it, was there ever doubtful moments? Was there a doubt like, well, should we have done that? And, and if so, how did you as a team rally together and, and just continue on knowing that you were on the right path? Yeah, if I remember correctly, I, I felt more doubt when we were like sort of going through the decision making process and then actually and then actually having to meet with Kathy to do it. And I and I think for a period of time shortly after, I think that we we felt some doubt about whether or not we'd made the right decision. 
But I think once Caitlin stepped on the ice with us the next year and, you know, we did, we went, we traveled to Europe in that fall and had lots of fun. And, and I don't remember there being much doubt after that, you know, mm-hmm. like we had sort of dealt with it and, you know, we worked a lot with Cal Botterill at the time and he really was a huge support to us at that time. And uh, we really leaned on him. He traveled with us a lot that year because it was difficult and, you know, the media was difficult. The The curling community could be difficult at the time sometimes because there were so many questions around our decision. So uh, Cal Botterill was a huge support to us at the time. And I don't remember there being doubt, you know, by the time we stepped on the ice the next year, I, I think that we we knew we'd made a, a, the right decision and a good decision. And it still was tough for a long time, even throughout that year. But yeah, I don't remember there being much doubt after that. Is there more change in men's curling than women's changes like that? If I look back at the time that we made that change, I would say, yes, there was probably more in men's. Uh, And I I sometimes wonder if we took more heat than maybe a, a a men's team would. But I would say since then, those kinds of things tend to happen more often. Curling's becoming more of a business because it's becoming more of a full-time, a full-time thing for the athletes. It, you know, they try to find a way to do it full-time or they have to have a job that allows them to put all that effort into curling, the sponsorship deals that are there, you know, like there's just so many business aspects to it that if you're putting all that time and effort into playing at that level, you, you want to make sure that you're with the people like, especially because we have that choice in curling, right? That you're with the people that you want to be with and that you believe is going to lead you to the the best success, right? Yeah. So uh, I I think you see it a lot more in the last 10 years, uh, both men's and women's. Yeah. Um, But I think at that time, it was more so you would see it in men's and, and as much as there would be, you know, chitter chatter and media coverage about it, I felt like we really we really uh, for a long time had it, it talked about and perhaps it was for various reasons, but including just the uh, surprise of it, I guess, to sure. people, and that we were women doing it. I don't know, I'm, I'm sp- you know, like I can't speak for the people that were reading <laughs> all the media, but. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. But I think too, as the general public, you know, we get emotional about these things and we get emotional. And obviously you, you guys went on to great success. And I wanna talk about being that successful and being the best, Jill, being the best, undefeated at the Olympics and all of that. And and then sometimes you weren't, even after 2014, when like no one could seem to be able to beat you. And then time goes on and eventually you don't win all the world championships. You don't win all the Scotties. And is it harder being the best or to be the one sort of chasing that number one? I I think that probably staying at the top is difficult. I mean, getting to the top is hard too, right? But when I look back over sort of that time between whether it was like 2005 and 2008 up until, you know, even, even up until 2018, when I left the team, we kind of came on and rose to the top. And we were always in like on the point system that they have in curling, we were always right at the top. And when I think back to that now, I'm like, we somehow managed to stay at the top for a long time. I mean, not to say that we weren't challenged and, and whatever else, but consistently speaking, we, we were consistent enough to maintain that ranking. And I think it's just because we didn't, 
you know, we, we just continued to sort of work hard. We continued to think about different things or how to get better because, you know, we always had gaps in our performance. So how do you address those gaps, right? You do the gap analysis and you figure out, make a plan to address that gap, right? And, um, and so I think we would just do that. And I think Jen and I are actually quite different in a lot of ways, but I think that that's what complemented our team. And I think for like one thing that she always did really well was really thought outside the box about things. Um, and so she sort of brought that. And I think that contributed to us being able to maintain being at the top of the rankings all the time and that people weren't like always surpassing us. I mean, there were times where we were maybe ranked number two or three instead of one or whatever, but that nonetheless, we were still sort of at the top. So uh, I think we just, yeah, we were just always sort of working hard and figuring out our gaps and figuring out what we needed to improve on. Yeah. And how cool to not be stuck in the way, well, this, we won this way, we're sticking with it, right? To realize that we need to move with the progress of the sport to stay on top. You spoke about Jen there and, and, and it's something that, you know, one of her great qualities and there are so many I'm curious about team dynamic. Curling to me, having played in a team sport, I've never played on a team because I've never been on a serious curling team where one person's name is on the team, right? In curling, I just find this, I don't know, it came to mind. I get to talk to Jill Officer today. I am asking her, has there ever been controversy or a challenge in the curling world by curlers to say, I don't know if I want my skip's name to be, why am I, why am I team Jennifer Jones? My name is Jill officer. I know you're all humble and wonderful human beings, but <laughs> has that ever sat not right with some people? Like, talk about that. I think that's really a unique thing about curling. Yeah. Um, and it was never really an issue on our team. I'll say that. Um, <laughs> I, but I have seen it on other teams where you'll, you'll show up in a, at an event and somebody will be listed under their sponsor name which is a good idea as well, right? Like whatever your title sponsor is. So then you, you know, you have to figure out obviously who they are or they might, yeah, they, the odd time you might've seen it under a different name, but it never was really challenged to the point that it became common to do it all the time. You know, right. it's, just, it's just kind of the way it is in curling, I guess. And I've sometimes thought like, well, why not do it based on your sponsor or why not just come up with a team name as opposed to, you know, the skips name, because we see that in every other sport, right? It's like, right. well, you're cheering for the Winnipeg Westman, or you're cheering for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, or you're cheering for the NHL Jets, right? Like yeah. it's nobody's name. It's just like a team name, right? Yeah. So it just, you know, some tried it and it just never took off. So I guess the skip being the one that, you know, calls the shots is sort of the leader of the team. Uh, has the most pressure on them in terms of the shot making, you know, because it's either a miss or a make most of the time with them. And so I, I guess it's just always the way it's been done and no one has made a significant challenge at it. <laughs> yeah. So Jill, 2014, you guys were at the top of the world. I mean, the Olympics is just another animal to win the Olympics. It's even different than world championships. It's not necessarily better. It's just different. So there you were, Jill, you know, in that moment and savoring it, I hope for as long as you could. Oh, yes. uh, and you played four more years on that team. You retired in 2018. Yes. So take us through that last four years of your career. And um, when did you become a mom in all of this time? Right. Um, my daughter Cameron was born in 2011, late 2011. 
so she was about two years old when I went to the Olympics in, in 14, a little over two. After 14, we, we all sort of discussed and I, I don't think any of us really thought too much or thought twice about it. We were like, no, man, we just won the Olympics. Like, of course we're going to play again. Like, you know, this is like so much fun and whatever. And uh, anyway, so, so yeah, we went on to, to play for another quadrennial together. And I don't know, like for me, that last quadrennial was really important. I think in my evolution, I think it was important in my evolution as an athlete. I think it was important as, in my evolution as a person. Um, something happens or, or for me, it did something happened when we won the Olympics, as much as people might think that now the pressure's really on, I was kind of like pressure's off. Yeah. We finally won. Um, and so, yeah, like at least for the first little while, right. It, it was, but I mean, we were also used to the pressure. So, you know, and, and so eventually it was, it was like, okay. in in my mind, I, I was like, oh gosh, how great would it be for us to be de- defend our gold medal? That's only happened one other time in curling. Yeah. Uh, and it was Annette Norberg's team that won in 06 and 2010. So from Sweden. And I was like, oh, I just wanted it so bad for us to be able to, to do that again, right? Um, but I think that because I felt like, okay, we'd won the Olympics finally, for me, it was a bit like the blinders came off. So, and I'm sure you can relate to this, Michelle, as, a, as an athlete, you're so hyper-focused on your sport, right? And you're so hyper-focused on, on every, anything and everything to do with your sport that it's sometimes hard to see other things. That's how I found it. And so after, you know, we were just so focused on trying to get to the Olympics. We, we had been in the trials twice before. Um, so it was just so awesome that we finally had that opportunity. And then when we won, it was almost like I could take those blinders off without risk and, and that I could see other things or I could test other things or I could, you know, I mean, athletes are always sort of pushing, pushing limits and pushing themselves, but there was just other things that I felt like maybe I could do now that I was maybe a a little nervous to do before because I didn't want to change too much, I guess. So just different things that like, even with how I approach the game, even how like I was as a teammate, I I found like I became a little less uh, stoic on the ice over time, like over the years. And just, yeah, just different things. Like I kind of allowed myself to be a little more myself than maybe I had been, which it was fine because I maybe hadn't realized it. And that was what I needed to do. And that, and I'm totally fine with that. I have no regrets about any of it. Um, But I think that it just allowed me to have a different perspective a little bit on the game and on the team and things like that. And I can't remember exactly what point it was in that quadrennial, but I knew that I wasn't going to have another quad left in me. Right. Right. Uh, I would maybe have been able to play another year, but I think it kind of just depended on the team and, you know, how we did in that last Olympic year and things like that. So as much as I just knew I didn't have it in me, um, I just knew that I needed a break. Right. Cause I never did say I retired. <laughs> right. That's Right. No, and and I always, I always joke that I'm the only athlete that didn't use the word retirement, but actually ended up retiring. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so yeah, but I just knew that I, I didn't, and I was like, I felt like I was in the best shape, best shape of my life at that point. Like I'd, I'd done a few physical things differently. I had, um, gotten a new physiotherapist that really made a huge difference and just all these little things. So I actually, actually felt like that last quad was one of my best as an individual athlete, as an individual player in terms of consistency and shot making and things like that. And, uh, but I just didn't have it in me mentally and emotionally anymore. Like I needed a break or I was just really, I was going to put myself over the edge. And so that's why I made the choice to, to leave at that time. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you talked about you sort of allowed yourself to be more yourself or to be a little freer. And, and that's what we're finding. And I'm finding in these conversations when people found themselves, they became their very best. Yes. And it wasn't just, you know, like when I got pushed hard or when I got, you know, beaten down and brought back up, then I was my best. It wasn't that, you know, and I think that's just so cool. Even though you were in a place where you knew this was your last four years, it just struck me right now that, man, that freed you to be the very best that, that you could be. Jill, oh. you're, so talk about your very last game, like the very last game you played. Well, I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit on, on like how it, how, like, so I had decided probably it was before we went to the Scotties that year. We yeah. we had won the provincials, and before we went to the Scotties, you know, we're we're we'd been talking about it because I know the girls wanted to like just know what was going on and you know make plans. Wanted to you know think about who they were going to get, and they they knew I was like, but it was really hard to verbalize it, right? And so before, but then I, before the Scotties, I was like, you know what? I don't want this hanging over my head. I don't want this hanging over the team's head. I just want to go win the Scotties. So I said to the team. I can't do it. Like I, I'm out. Like I would maybe be able to do another year, but I know that's not how curling works. You need to plan for a quad. So I'm out. And I was so glad that I did that before the Scotties because I really, I, I mean, for me, maybe anyways, it just took the burden off and we went and won the Scotties that year. Yeah. Um, and so then there was a bit of a debate on, well, when do we make this announcement? You know, some of our media people said, oh, you should wait until after the Worlds. And I and we were kind of like, me and Jen were kind of like, no, I think we'd just like to put it out there so that, again, it's just not sort of this little thing nagging at us that nobody knows or whatever. So we decided as a team that we were going to put that out before we went to the Worlds. So we did. And I, I think it was good because then I just went in there with this oh my gosh, this is my last world championship. I'm going to enjoy this like so much. I'm just going to be grateful for this opportunity because I don't know what my future holds in terms of curling. So, and, and it was probably the best world championship we'd ever played in because we were in North Bay, Ontario of all places. Like people were like, what you curl in the worlds in North Bay. And it's like, yeah. And it was the best one ever because it was packed every game it was packed anytime we walked out of the dressing room into the arena it could have been 30 minutes before the game and we're coming out for practice and they would cheer even if each of us walked out individually they would cheer each of us when we came on the ice they would cheer when we left the ice like it was amazing and so i was so grateful for that opportunity to go and we and we played the olympic champ at the time anna hasselberg in the final played an extra and super exciting game and, and we met and we won and it was just so awesome. But um, after that, we still had actually two events to play and we had two grand slams to play in. So the actual last game was we played at the champions cup. I think we were in Calgary 
we lost out in the semifinals and I remember the girls just, you know, giving me a big hug and Jen just hugged me and held me for like what felt like an eternity. It was probably only like a couple of minutes or something, but uh, yeah, it was just so much history there. Right. And yeah, it was special. Really an incredible journey. And Jill, for you, even getting married while you're an athlete, getting married while you have something that you're still so married to. Some people think, well, that's never going to work. And now they're having babies and they're doing this sport thing. And how did that work? I mean, you obviously had a great network with your girlfriends doing the same thing and your teammates and Boy, that's a, that's a big thing to, that's a big bite to take. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, my husband and I got married in 2008. Uh, and so I got pregnant in 2011. And I think I was a little bit worried about telling the girls because I got pregnant at a time that I was going to be uh, due in the middle of the curling season. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of curlers actually try to plan their pregnancies around <laughs> curling, but it just obviously doesn't always work. Right. Like it's just, it's not always that easy. And so, you know, for us, we just felt that we were at the age that I, that we didn't want to, like I was in my late thirties. So it didn't want to like have to try to wait another year to try to plan it and time it because you just never know what sort of issues you might be having that are preventing you from getting pregnant. So it was like, we just didn't want to take that chance. So I got pregnant and was due in the middle of the season. And uh, the girls were great. You know, they brought on a player to play for that first half of the season. And I, I don't think I felt pressure from my team, but I certainly had, pre- had put pressure on myself to come back as soon as I could. And I had talked to other women ahead of me that uh, had done the same thing. They'd been back on the ice in, within a few weeks after having, have, after giving birth. Some of them though, I think um, my understanding for, for curling is that the longer you can stay throwing rocks when you're pregnant, the better it, the better it is. Your balance adjusts as you go along and then, you know, getting back on the ice after is, is good. But I couldn't, because I was sort of pregnant throughout the summer, I couldn't actually, um, I couldn't actually practice all the time. So when I did actually try to go throw a rock, it was way beyond my balance was way beyond gone. Like it was, (laughs) so I, I didn't play for that first half of the season and, but I was back on the ice. I think I was back on the ice about four weeks after I'd gotten approval from my doctor and I was back on the ice four weeks after, and I played in provincials when Cameron was six weeks old. And uh, played in the Scotties when Cameron was like eight, nine weeks old. So, so yeah, it was, I, I don't know if I would do it the same way again, truthfully, but uh, it was what I felt that I needed to do at that time. So, so yeah, um, we kind of squeezed it in, figured it out. And a couple of years later, it still worked out because we went to the Olympics and, uh, you know, she was two, uh, stayed with my brother so that my parents could come to Sochi and, uh, I actually just got home on the weekend with her from a curling event in Toronto that she came with me. Uh, she just finished her first year of curling and she is just loving it. She got all sorts of autographs of all the top players and she just had a blast. So um, I'm glad that she likes it and is not bitter and resentful about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for sure, as, as moms do, you must have had some moments where you wondered, should I be doing all of this? And is she getting enough from me? Yes, 100%. And that exactly, right? And 
Oh, it's such a fine balance. I mean, obviously, yeah, I think you did kind of ask me to touch on the support aspect because my husband was great. I mean, he literally just took it on like full on was like, yeah, do what you need to do. I got her. I'm looking after her like, you know, and it was great. I just feel like, you know, you had that I had that trust and it was no problem. And my parents helped out and it was it was great. Um, I still sort of say that I think her my daughter's relationship with my husband is the way that it is because they spent so much one-on-one time together when like as she grew up you know like so she was I think about six or six and a half maybe when when we won the worlds and I and I left curling so she was just kind of getting into it but he she was spending so much time with him and it was great like we, we just had couldn't do it without the support network but I also kind of kept telling myself like I want her to know that she can chase her dreams and, and it doesn't have to be curling, you know, like right. I, whatever her dream is, I just wanted her to know that she could do it and that she could have a family. And I did my best to give her the quality time yeah. when I was home, you know, which, which is sometimes hard too, because you're still like training and practicing and whatever else. Right. But so I, I I'm not going to say that it was easy, but we'd certainly see it a lot more often as particularly in curling now. Mm. Um, and I just think, we're, I like to believe that we're setting such a great example for our kids and for our daughters and, and even for our sons to allow their, the women in their lives to chase their dreams and not feel guilty about not being home 24 seven with your kids. It's okay to make that choice for yourself and, and to set a good example for your kids and just so many ways to be successful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. We have some rapid fire questions to finish off today. Here we are. You are 100 years old. What is the story you most love to tell? This is such a hard one. Like, and I, I'm guessing you're asking in relation to curling, but I mean, I do love to tell the story of the Olympics and, and walking and opening ceremonies. Um, and and the, the moment standing on the podium you know, having that medal placed placed on our neck, it, it was just like almost a little bit surreal sometimes to to think about those two moments. But those were the two moments that that really stood out to me and and got me most emotionally. So, yeah, I, it's hard not to talk about the Olympics. Who or what do you think people see when they see you? And is there something different you wish they would see? I think that people see me as uh, honest loyal, fun, funny, like likes to joke around a lot, uh, kind of goofy, personable, empathetic, easy to talk to. In terms of what I wish people would see, I think sometimes I've realized that being valued is important to me, you know, and I, and I, I think I sometimes wish that people would see how valuable I could be yeah. in certain ways. What is something people would be surprised to know about you? I don't really love training and going to the gym. <laughs> actually, it was like the hardest thing for me when I was playing. <laughs> I actually like, oh, it was such a struggle for me. Oh my gosh, it was such a struggle. And it's been the biggest struggle for me since leaving curling to have any sort of like consistency. I finally have had some consistency in the last six months, but oh my God, I, I it's not my thing. Like I love, I love, 
the effects of it. Like I love feeling strong and having the muscles and, and being strong to do day-to-day things, but oh my God, to get my butt to the gym is just such a chore. <laughs> and you're hearing that from an elite athlete. It is true. Exactly. Just because, right? We Because people do sports for their lives for a certain amount of time, it doesn't mean it's just easy to get in there. No, exactly. That's exactly. for sure. Uh, Jill, what exhausts you? What exhausts me is overdoing it, not taking care of myself, you know, like, like taking on too much, being busy all the time is just, it's too much for me. That's exhausting. And that, that kind of thing is exhausting. Yeah. Tried to learn to manage that. Yeah, I bet. I bet with all the opportunities you have now post-sport, you probably have to be very careful what you say yes and no to. So yes. what energizes you? Uh, what energizes me, I think is just, is connecting with people. Yeah. I just, I really, I've really realized in the last few years, how much I enjoy having deep connection with people and having, you know, honest, vulnerable conversations. Yeah. I just, I really try to make an effort to have those, those things happen. Cause I think it, it gives me some energy. Nice. What was a moment of intense joy that you've experienced in your life? I think there's a couple it's hard not to talk about the Olympics again, <laughs> but I, I mean, I also had intense joy with my daughter. And, and I, I think when my daughter was born, it, you know, obviously we were very, very happy. I think as she evolved into the personality that she has. So like starting around, around age one, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so, so awesome because the personality and the things that they learn and she was an early talker. So it was like, that really was like intense joy. I remember feeling that right around the time that she was one. I was like, oh my gosh, she is like so awesome, right? And it, but when I do look back to the Olympics too, I what really overcame me was walking in opening ceremonies and thinking about how long we had waited for that opportunity and all the people that helped us get there. And same with being on the podium. So both of those things actually really caught me off guard in, in, in terms of my emotion. I obviously was very happy to be there, but once I was actually in that moment, I could hardly keep it together. I was so, so incredibly happy and proud that I really, I, I was a blubbering fool. It's really special. Who are two or three people who have influenced you and how did they impact your life? Um, well, my parents, they put me in a lot of sports when I was a kid, you know, and my mom getting me into curling. And, and it's really hard. Jen's had a huge influence on my life. We've known each other since we were 16 years old mm -hmm. and went through a lot together. We went through, you know, school, you know, she went to law school and then eventually I went to communication school and, you know, she got married and I got married and I had a kid and she had a kid and, you know, and then all the curling stuff too. And like just her influence on me, even as an athlete, right? Like, I mean, it, we curled together for 23 years. Like she has huge, huge influence on who I am and, and who, who I was or am as an athlete and a huge influence on the success we had. Awesome. Jill, thank you for all you've given to Canadian curling and to women in sport and to moms, you know, who, who need to know and young women who need to know that sky's the limit and wanting to give back to sport. And now you're studying to even do more of that. And you're, you're an inspiring individual. And I know in your humility, you really didn't think you had a lot to tell us, but um, you filled this time with, with cool stories, stories that most of us will never get to live, but we get to feel what that is and enjoy it along with you. And I think Canada did that with you for a lot of years. And, and we thank you for that. Thank you, Michelle.
And that's Jill Officer, Olympic, world, and national champion, teammate, friend, wife, mom, and a hero in our midst. Brought to you today by Elite Sports Injury. With five locations in Winnipeg, they are here to help when you need physiotherapy or massage therapy. Your body's worth it. Make the time for yourself. So now it's your turn to share this story with your friends and family. And check out drtogood.com to find even more. I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk again soon.